everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of Attendance Bias. I am your host, Brian Weinstein. Today's guest is my friend, Robert Murray. And when Rob first reached out to me, he had a novel idea. He knew that I already spoke about the epic performance of David Bowie from December 29th, 1994 in Providence, Rhode Island, probably the most well-known and arguably the best version of that song. I was lucky enough and had the privilege to talk about it and break it down with Tom Marshall, but Rob thought that the Providence show deserved its own full episode aside from the David Bowie. I had never revisited the same show twice before, but I thought that Rob's idea was creative enough to work. Everyone knows the Providence Bowie, but what else happened that night? Well, that's what today's show is for, and you have Rob and I to help you out. Once we started putting notes together for this episode, I knew that I met my match. Normally, guests are a little taken aback by how much research I do and how much I write to prepare for an episode, but Rob even outdid me. When I sent him my half of the notes, the document was probably about 14 pages long. When he was done, it was 28 pages. So our conversation was just as cheery as the notes. So fair warning, if you're a severely jaded vet and can't stand when fans gush over just about everything Fish does, you may want to fast forward through this episode because Rob and I have a lot of good things to say about this show. The word perfect gets thrown around quite a bit, but when you're talking about the 1994 holiday run, I would argue that it's justified. And one last note about that. This episode has a pretty long running time, and that's largely due to the number of music clips included in this episode. Because once I started listening back to our conversation, I just couldn't help myself. This show is just that good. It became difficult to decide which songs not to include. But enough from me. Let's hear from Fish and listen for yourself as Rob Murray and I discuss their performance on December 29th, 1994 at the Providence Civic Center. Rob, thank you for being on Attendance Bias. How are you? Hey, I'm good, Brian. Thank you so much for having me. This is great. I'm so excited to have you on today because you've done something that hasn't yet been done on this show. And you've picked a show where probably the most famous part of it has been covered with a very high profile member of the fish community. That show is December 29th, 1994 at the Providence Civic Center, now known as the Dunkin' Donuts Center in Providence, Rhode Island. And when people think of this show, I would imagine that 99% of fans link it with the David Bowie that was played at the beginning of the second set, the Providence Bowie, right? Of course. Uh, Absolutely. And I got an email from you a number of weeks ago saying that you want to talk about this show because there's so much to dig into in addition to the David Bowie. And I thought that was a really fair point. Yeah, totally. I mean, I had... I've heard several times on various podcasts, people talk about the the Providence Bowie. And of course, everything that has been said about it is perfectly correct. But I'm constantly thinking like, what about the rest of the show? Don't sleep on it. So, <laughs> so this is kind of a friendly reminder to everybody to hit up the Bowie, but don't, don't ignore the rest of it. Perfect. Yeah. And I was extra surprised and pleased that when I went back to the fish.in recording, if it's not a soundboard, it's real close to being a soundboard. There is a great recording out there free for everyone to listen to. Have you listened to that lately? 
I I haven't heard the fish.in recording because it's the it's a live fish release. Yeah. Um, and that also is a pristine, beautiful recording. But um, but I will check out that recording for sure. And everyone it's, else should if it, if it sounds good. It's interesting because I got into fish in the mid to late 90s. And there were times when tapes, audience recordings were brutal, you yeah. know, where you would just kill to get a certain show on tape. But once you heard it, you could barely hear anything. It was so boomy. They were playing such large yeah. venues. But now, you know, and, and then when they got into live fish right out during their first hiatus, yeah. We all became spoiled, right? We all wanted the soundboards coming across right. the soundboard was a gold nugget in the river. And now yeah. that I've been doing this podcast for the last two years or so, I've really come to appreciate an audience recording or a matrix recording where yeah. the technology of audience recordings and remastering audio recordings have mm -hmm. come a million light years from where we started. Yeah, totally. I mean, I, I remember back in the days of 94, 95, you know, you would have however many tapes you had, 12, 14, 25, however many, but only a small number of those sounded good. Yeah. So you listen to maybe like four or seven of them, you know, like it wasn't like you listened to everything because it was a bit of a crapshoot. You didn't know where they were coming from always, if they have been re-recorded or, you know, copied over. So. And for me, they were all from 92 to 96, basically. Those yep. tapes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For me, I mean, when I started listening to Fish, it was 94. So all the tapes me and my friends had were like, you know, some going back to 87, but mostly like 90 to 93. Well, let's talk about when you first got into Fish. And we're going to start with the attendance bias lightning round. Attendance bias lightning round. So, Rob, when was your first Fish show? So my first fish show was April 16th, 1994 at the Mullen Center, UMass Amherst in Amherst, Massachusetts. And were you a student? I was a student, but not at UMass. I was a high school student. Oh, I was a, I was a sophomore in high school and I live close to UMass. So it was oh, lucky you. It was a no brainer. <laughs> <laughs> and what was your most recent show and what did you think of it? Uh, most recent show was the second night of the Baker's Dozen, which was July 22nd, 2017. It was the Strawberry Night. And it was actually the first, believe this or not, Brian, it was the first show that I'd seen since November of 1998. Oh, wow. So I'd had quite a hiatus, but um, it, was, it was so much fun to see them in the city, first of all, but just to be back and see them was amazing. And it was a really fun show. I mean... Strawberry Fields Forever acapella. Yeah. Know? And then, yeah. And then all kinds of stuff. A great Haley's Comet. You know, I was there with a friend of mine who I was actually with at the Providence show. So it was a great time. If someone asked you for a recommendation to get them into fish, someone who was totally blind to them, what would you recommend? Whether it's a live show, an album, a song, where would you start? I would... I would always tend to go to earlier shows. I think that for me, at least to my ear, there's something about the earlier shows that is a little bit more relatable maybe to someone who doesn't really know much about the band. And especially now with, you know, that they have such a deep history now there's, I, I've talked to some people who tell me that just the sheer amount of music that, that is out there <laughs> yeah. put, puts them off from getting into it because they have no idea where to start. So I always recommend earlier shows. Well, how early are you talking? 
I'm talking like I would probably not go back farther than 89, um, although they still sounded great before 89. Um, but 1990, 91, I think a lot of those shows, you know, were played in smaller venues. I think it's more relatable. People can hear that they're like in a bar or like yeah. in a small theater. You can hear people in, on some tapes chatting. You know, you can hear the same dude screaming in the back of the room. Um, and also, too, the band was so good back then that I, I think it's in a way it's easier to hear how good they were than if you play them something from 97 or 98 or 95 first. Um, and also, too, if you start with the earlier shows, by the time someone gets to 94, or 95, they really would appreciate how good they were then. You I know, agree so. with you. You know, Dave Steinberg, uh, also known as Zizix, when he was on the show, that was his answer. Um, yeah. It was it wasn't during the lightning round, but it came up in conversation that he said that when people ask, what should I listen to to get into fish? He's always shocked that more people don't say like 1992, 1991 because they were so prolific there was new songs like every night it seemed yeah and they're songs that are now classics and a lot they still play and moreover when people hear fish i think a lot of the association is oh these 30 minute jams you know it's the low-hanging fruit jokes and they didn't jam a lot in that era you know the longest tracks are like nine minutes Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a lot more rock based and they were still playing the jazz tunes back then. Yeah. Take so the you really got a good sense of, you know, a really good sense of how versatile they were and how good at everything they were. So, yeah, I think those are really great shows. And the other thing for me, too, is like you can hear in those old tapes that it was obvious that people were seeing them for the first time. Yeah. In almost all of those shows, like they were picking up new fans night by night in those days and you can really hear it in the tapes and it's it, they're fun to hear. So that's where I would I would start as a recommendation. And talking about going back to the early 90s, if you had a time machine and if you could go back to witness any fish moment on stage or off stage, where would you go or when would you go? I have a long list of answers, but I would choose only a couple. Okay. Um, I would I would definitely have to go back to March 12, 1988 which is the show at Nectar's where they debuted Gamehenge. Oh, that's um, good specific answer. <laughs> and and is is a great sounding tape. Right. Actually for the time you can definitely hear it and it's amazing. And I probably would go back to to Arrowhead Ranch, July 20, 21st, 1991. That's one um, of my first I, tapes for sure. Soundboard. That was one yep. of my first tapes. I mean that tape was legendary yeah. back in the day and I spun it nonstop Same. so it would have been cool to be there for sure and what is your favorite post-show snack you get home after the show or maybe on the way home what do you get uh i don't i don't really have one in particular i mean i think probably anything that's around <laughs> that's i mean I'm, answer, always, I'm, I'm always a sucker for a good slice of pizza in 1994 when i was much younger my favorite snack was you know partying with my friends all night after the show, (laughs) but you know, those days are long over. So, (laughs) you know, even when I was much younger, in 1994, I was too young to see fish, but I'm thinking, you know, 98 or even uh, to use this phrase as recent as 2004. uh, Yeah. You know, I, I still just wanted to go home and go to sleep. You know, I would, I would need to eat something back then. And now I, I always need to eat something. 
but yeah. I was never one to stay up all night and party. It's just not in my nature. Yeah, we were, me and my friends were into that. And, you know, whenever you would go see fish, it would just, you were just jazzed after that. It was hard to, it's hard to calm down. I'm still jazzed. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that doesn't go away. Right, and, yeah, yeah. And finally, what is the weirdest thing you've ever seen at a fish show? I mean, there are two things that I that I really could think about that I thought of. The first one was at the the 94 New Year's Eve show at the Boston Garden, the hot dog show. Um, you know, I was that was the first year I'd seen them play. That night was my sixth show. Um, and I didn't quite and I had heard the New Year's Eve show from the previous year from 93, but I didn't quite get at the time that they would do like New Year's Eve gags. I didn't quite know that was a thing at the time, you know? So I think it was after the second set, before the third set started, and you can hear this on the tape, they do this whole shtick where John Fishman is hungry and orders a hot dog. And I remember I was sitting there thinking like, what, like, what is going on here? <laughs> like, cause they weren't on stage yet. You know, the stage was not ready to be played on yet. It right. Was it like was over the, the PA. Still. Yeah, it was over the PA and it was like this whole banter about how he wanted a hot dog. And then it kind of ended and they came out and they played and it was like, it was just a weird moment. I was like, huh, what, what, what's going on here? Like, what is that? <laughs> yeah. It's performance art when you think about it. Yeah, totally. 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 I mean, they, I mean, it was so fun, you know, after they came out and I saw the hot dog, of course I put it all together and realized what the gag was, but um it was just, it was a really cool thing to see. And also just that a band would do that. I'd never heard of a band, you know, kind of talking to the audience or, you know, kind of performing in that way for the audience. It was very cool. I would get a lot of shit for this, I think. But while everyone was having a great time at Big Cypress, I spent the New Year's of the millennium, 99, seeing yeah. Billy Joel at Madison Square Garden which I know oh, is no. like persona non grata in the fish community, but you know, he just did a countdown and a champagne toast. Yeah. You know, that's like how straight his audience is compared to right. this big goofy gag that fish. Right. Now that you mention it, it really is kind of an interactive uh, performance art to just yeah, totally. take something that's traditional, untraditional or kind of blend the two. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I think they were so back in the day, that was one of the things that was so attractive about them. I mean, they seemed like they really cared about the audience and giving them a good time, you know, and, this and they episode... really did. So that was a weird moment. The other one I would say um, was at the 94 Halloween show in Glens Falls, the White Album show. That show, as I recall correctly, was a, the floor was general admission. And I remember if I'm remembering correctly, that that was unusual. As far as I knew, most shows, the floor was not general admission in those days at that time. But on that night it was. And I remember right before the show started, I was sitting um, kind of on the John, John Fishman side, kind of in front of the stage a little bit, like eye level with the band basically. And I remember right before the show started, there was like this frantic exodus of people like running down and jumping over the hockey boards to get onto the floor. And it wasn't just like one or two people. It was like, it was like, it was almost, it was like bedlam almost like all of a sudden there was like this stampede almost of people running down everywhere in the, in the, in the stadium and jumping onto the floor. And that was also a weird moment. Cause I was like, someone's going to get hurt. Like, 
I mean, I don't know. It just was like, it happened quickly and it was, it was pretty bizarre to watch actually, but it was like pure excitement, <laughs> you know? When was this show played? So the sure. context of the New Year's run of 94 has been covered, I think twice, possibly three times on this show. So I'm just going to give a brief over- overview. And I'd like to hear a lot more about who you were, Rob, in 1994, what led you to this show. But the sure. very brief cliff notes is that the 1994 Fish Holiday Run was traditionally the four shows, but it was long before the traditional four show run at MSG. Instead, this run was four separate venues. And I'm testing myself. I didn't write this in the notes. You correct me okay. if you remember. I don't okay. know the right order. I'll try to do it backwards. So New Year's Eve 94 was at Boston Garden. The 30th was at Madison Square Garden. That was their first show at MSG. So the 29th was here in Providence. And so yeah. the 28th was in Philadelphia, I believe, at the Spectrum. Yes, I think you're right. All right. Good. Yeah. <laughs> All right. I'm testing myself. So four nights, but each night in a different venue in a different city. Yep. Uh, and according to fish.com, everything was freezing cold. This whole run, all four nights was cold and very snowy. Do you remember that? I do. I was actually on the night of the 29th. I arrived to the Providence Civic Center quite early in the day, like around noon time or one and i was outside basically all day and it was jeez it was frigidly cold windy i don't remember snow so much but it was it was bitter cold all day you've mentioned 1994 a number of times now which sure. is one of my favorite years it's it used to be when people would ask what's your favorite year and of course that could change on a day to day basis let alone right. over the course of listening to the band for 26 years yeah but 1994 to me is like a lightning bolt. It's straight electricity. Their well of songs was growing exponentially. Mm-hmm. Everything was at a thousand miles per hour and yep. they were exploding in popularity, but I wasn't yep. there. So you were in real time. Can you tell me what your impressions were of fish that year? I, so I was 17 and I was in high school and I had learned about them probably like the end of 93 was when I first started kind of hearing the name, but you know, I didn't really know who they were, or what the music sounded like. And I remember I actually was fortunate enough to go see the Grateful Dead play in fall of 93 at the Boston garden, same, same venue as the hot dog show. And they did a six night run. I think it was in September or October. Uh, you'd have to that check, makes sense was, that makes sense because yeah. they would do those runs in the mid 90s or early 90s when they would play madison square garden for eight yep. or nine shows and then go to boston and philadelphia like this northeast corridor tour yeah yeah yeah. so i remember at that at that grateful dead show that there was a guy wearing a summer fish summer 93 tour t-shirt probably six rows in front of me and it was the first time that i actually was able to put a visual to like this name of the band that I had kind of heard around. And so, so that was like fall of 93. And then by, you know, March of 94, when Hoist was released, I bought Hoist. So in between that time, I had gotten my hands on some tapes and had heard them. So 94 was the first time that I really knew who they were. And my first show was April 94. I saw six shows that year. 
if I, if I had been older and had a little bit more money and more agency at the time, I probably would have seen a lot more, but yeah. you know, I, I did the best I could as a high school student at that time. I saw six, but my impressions of them then were just that they were completely explosive. Their sound was unlike anything I'd ever heard before. They, they played harder. They rocked harder than any, any band that I knew. And I was a, I, I was a huge music fan. So what else were like you I was, into? I mean, I was into a lot of different stuff. My 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 dad actually happened to be a, a DJ in Boston back long before I was born, and he had a huge record collection. So I grew up listening to, you know, Dylan, Beatles. He had Grateful Dead records, Hendrix records. Was it Joni WBCN? Mid- yeah, WBCN. Oh, yeah. cool. Yeah, um, he had Joni Mitchell records, jazz records, you know, Muddy Waters, Howlin' Wolf. I mean, I listened to a lot of different kind of music. And then in the nine, early 90s, I was listening to like hip hop and, um, you know, all, all kinds of stuff. So I, so I was not like a new, I was not new to music by any means. Sure. But still, Fish was something that was just, it, it felt like they were completely, came out of nowhere, first of all. No one knew who they were in 94. I mean, I, I know you said the scene was growing and it really was. It was changing right before us back then. But at the time, like if I said to someone like a family member or, you know, a random person like, oh, I'm going to see fish. Like no one knew who they were outside of like the college scene and, you know, the music scene, whatever. That makes a lot of sense in Massachusetts, though, because it's a collegiate state. There are so many right. colleges. There's such a big network. Yeah, well, I, you know, I, I found out later that the area that I'm from is very rich in fish history. And, you know, through the late 80s, they played many, many shows in and near my hometown, which I was too young for at the time. Right. And so, you know, a lot of the venues they played as a smaller band, I later saw many, many shows there when I was older, just a few years later. You know, like in 1989, I was 12 and they were playing like 25 minutes from where I grew up in bars, you know, and there's no way I could have known about them then. Right. Um, but when I got to be, you know, in high school and there were people listening to fish where I was in high school. And so there were tapes around. So when I began to get interested in it, there was some way for me to get my hands on some of it, which was not really easy back then. Um, but, you know, in terms of the band, like I said, they just were, they played harder they were more creative. They were, I mean, it, easily the best musicians I ever saw play at the time. So fun and so, so there for the audience. It really felt like everything they did was for us. Where do you get and that connection? Like, how does that look or how does that, how does that sound when you say that? I think the first, the first two or three shows that I saw, it was just the enthusiasm, seeing, seeing the enthusiasm of the audience. And how locked in to the playing everybody was at that time. I, I don't know if I'm getting, if I'm getting, if it's too early for this, but maybe there were some cell phones around, but I don't think so in 94. But we didn't have, you know, these devices in our pockets. I think the scene was a lot younger. I mean, there was this kind of feeling that like getting older was not going to happen or couldn't happen. <laughs> that kind of like we all felt that way. You know what I mean? And when you went to, when, when you went to go see them at that time, it was like people my age, I was 17 and people older than me, but not that much older, like maybe four years or five years, maybe six years, but that was about it. 
So it felt very, it felt very for us. And the fact that they played different shows every night and did things like the Donyak Schweiss, where you could, you know, get the, the newsletter in the mail and Mike, reading Mike's Corner, like the weird stuff they would put in there. It just really felt like they were, they were moving in the complete opposite direction of every other band at the time, doing their, completely their own thing in the best possible way. And it was all for us. So where were you in 94 that led you to this New Year's run show, the 29th? So the 29th was my fifth show. So I, I, and I was already hooked, you know, I mean, I knew at that point that I wanted to see as many shows as possible. And the story behind this show um, is that a buddy of mine, me and several of my friends had plans already to go to the New Year's Eve show. And my buddy um, must have told me at one point that he was going to the Providence show two nights before with kind of his crew of friends from a summer camp that he went to friends of his that I didn't know. And they, and so we kind of schemed that I would come along. They got me a ticket. And so I got onto a bus in Springfield, Massachusetts, and there weren't a lot of buses to Providence on that day. And I had to get an early bus. So I rode on the bus from Springfield to Providence by myself. I remember in my Walkman, I was listening to 123093. And I showed up in Providence early, like 1230, one o'clock. Um, got to the Providence Civic Center. It was empty and I was just by myself. So I spent this whole day kind of like hanging out by myself, watching the crowd show up, talking to people, you know, walking around to the same places over and over again in the frigid cold, (laughs) Um, just kind of having a great time, taking in the whole scene, kind of, you know, just being so happy that, that there was a band like that to see, you know, um, And, you know, my friend showed up late in the day, I remember. It was probably like 5, 5.30, maybe 6. You know, I had been looking around for, you know, cannabis, smokable treats all day because, you know, 17 at a fish show, that's what part of the fun was. And there actually was, there was, as I recall, there was nothing around. And I remember people saying like, oh man, it's a dry, it's a dry afternoon. It's going to be a dry show. And a lot of people were looking, but it seemed like there was not much around. And then like right before the show, right before we went in, we got lucky. My friend showed up, um, we got lucky and went inside the venue having a great time. So it seemed like the night was like, it started off like maybe a little slow, but then the night started to pick up and it was like, oh, this is gonna be fun. We go inside. I didn't know where we were sitting because my friends bought the tickets. And I noticed, oh, we're going to the floor. That's cool. Oh, there's the soundboard. That's cool as we walk by it. Right. And I was thinking like, oh, this is the closest I've been to the stage in the five shows, in the four shows that I've seen. And we finally found our seats and we were about 20, 20 feet back from right in front of Trey. And it was like, okay, let's do it. This is going to be great. Yeah, you had it made. I mean, it was, it was really amazing. And so that whole part of the day was, I mean, thinking back on it, it really was an amazing day and it's an incredible memory. And I really have always cherished it. You know, even, even like the day after that show, I was like, I knew that it was a special day. And, and I knew at that point that it was a special show. So before we go over the show, why do you have attendance bias toward it? So the main, the main impetus, like I said before, was that so much is made of this David Bowie and rightfully so it is, it is a superbly performed piece of art. 
Um, it really is. And everyone should hear it. Um, but I always thought to myself when I hear people talking about it, like, what about the rest of the show? It was an amazing night. It was an incredible show from start to finish. And I think I wrote to you in the first email I sent you that like I, my, my, my mind was blown even after the first set, like before they even played the Bowie, I knew that this was a night to remember and you can hear it in the recording for sure. So I have really hard attendance bias for this show because of how old I was at the time, because of what my life looked at the time, you know, what my life looked like at the time, um, the experience I had arriving to the show alone and meeting people. And, you know, it's really one of those like important kind of adolescent memories to yeah. me. And so it turned out that that show was amazing. And it turned out that that show has a historic, was a historic performance. You know, at the time we didn't know it. I mean, I knew after the show that it was special. And for years after that, I maintained when people asked me that that was my favorite show that I'd seen. Um, but I never really knew if other people agreed with me that it was as good as I thought it was. And I actually, I remember the day that I saw the live fish release in a, in a record store. I think it was like 2000 or so. It was right when those albums came out mm -hmm. and I was, and I didn't know they had been released. I was flipping through them. And the very last one in the stack was 1221, 1229.94. And I was like, I'm vindicated. I'm right. It was an amazing <laughs> show. The band knew it. <laughs> and, you know, in the years since then, I mean, I feel like at the time, even then, it wasn't really like the Providence Bowie was not a thing yet. I feel like it's yeah. become more well-known since then. So it, I think it's just coincidence that I happened to be at this show on that night, had an amazing personal time at what has now become this historic fish show. You well, know, let's so. dig into it. Let's dig right into it. Set one. So they, they kick off the first set with Runaway Jim, which for the time, a typical opener, not so much anymore. But right away, you can hear there's lots of pep. Typical 1994 high tempo. Uh, I didn't hear this on the first few times I've listened to it, that uh, according to Fish.net has a dueling banjos tease. Sort mm. of. I don't know. It's hard for me uh, to, to hear it. And it it's a great way to kick off the show because it doesn't have just that six minute. All right. This is a song we're going to start. It really lets you know what you're in for that night. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, that that opener, I actually remember that I had a twinge of disappointment when they started Runaway Jim. And I remember this very clearly because two of the shows I had seen previously opened with Jim. And I was really into hopefully seeing new tunes. Like I wanted to see new songs. And that feeling was quickly dispelled <laughs> when you when you hear how much energy is behind this song. Yeah. I mean, it almost doesn't matter what they're playing. The feeling behind it is pretty extraordinary. And, you know, listening back to it, the one thing that I think is interesting is I feel like a lot of the time you hear them start a song strong. When they start a jam, I feel like sometimes they kind of pull back a little bit, you know, like things mellow out just a little bit as they Especially kind of Especially to open a show. Especially to open a show, but this version of Jim does not waver at all. They yeah. start on 10 and the entire thing is carried through at that level. And it's really, it's really amazing. Yeah. 
especially at the end. You know, I re-listened to this show today, and especially yeah. at the end of Runaway Jim, when they have a flawless segue into foam. And I think Fishman starts it where he's playing yeah. a normal drum beat and then he goes off. Like he doesn't play on the his snare drum, doesn't stick on the uh the two and the four. And yeah. then he just he goes a little bit off. And it's yeah. it's it's almost as if they're reading each other's minds through direct ESP. And Trey and Mike especially know that he's playing either he's playing foam or he's playing a beat that can easily turn into foam. And it's easy when you hear it, but it's almost impossible (laughs) for anyone other than fish to do it. And foam isn't my favorite song, but how can you, how can you deny this? It's perfect. And there's, you know, in the Runaway Gym, there are several moments where if you're listening to Fishman, he's just doing some incredible, subtle, like tasteful, creative, perfect stuff underneath everything. And it's really, it's really incredible to listen to. I mean, I think the Live Fish recording is actually an incredibly like clear sounding recording, even compared to some other shows that I've heard. And you can really hear each member well. And Fishman is just killing it in this version of Runaway Jim. And like you said, he he somehow he he starts the foam rhythm out of thin air, flawlessly, does not miss a beat at all. And they all it just it goes right into it. I mean, it's amazing to listen to. Yeah, if you had to define segue to someone who doesn't know what that term means, or at least as it applies to music, yeah. this is it. And after that, they they bring it down a little bit, not completely, but a little bit with If I Could, you know, that usual set list rhythm of open with a banger, bring it up a notch and then cool it down a little bit with a ballad. And I was surprised that at the beginning of the recording, the audience recording, at least gigantic roar from the crowd, huge ovation.
know if that's for foam or the beginning of if I could, because ballads now and then always get a little bit of shit from the audience. But this is a beautiful, beautiful recording. I would use this version of if I could, if I was still in the era when I would make mixtapes for girls that I liked. Yeah, this one would be on it. It would it would have to be prominently featured for sure. You know, I one thing I do want to say about that foam quickly yeah. is that because yeah. it's your your question about why the why the crowd was cheering for if I could, but you know, the transition into foam was so perfectly done. But foam is also, and I've said this for a long time to people that I think it's one of the best versions of foam that I've ever heard for sure. I don't know if it's one of the best, but um because it, it carries all that momentum from Runaway Jim into it. And it is nailed perfectly. It is played so creatively. Like there, it has, like everything has extra flourishes in it. And it just sounds like they are, they are so keyed into each other. It, it's, it's, it's amazing to hear. And so at the, by the end of Foam, the crowd, I think, there's a huge roar for that gym foam and the segue that took us to, you know, took us all there. But then again, you're right. No one knew what was going to happen, but everyone in that room knew that it was a special night after just hearing those first two songs. And when, if I could started, you're right. Like there is a huge audience cheer, which is surprising, but it, they, they lay out the most beautiful version of this song. I mean, you've got to hear it. If you have yeah. not heard it, you've got to hear it. It's, it's, it's superb. It really is amazing. It is. And even by the end, Machine Gun Trey can't keep away. Even from this very delicate, uh, very beautiful song, he's still got to rip it up a bit on guitar. beautiful at the time i remember thinking i mean that was on hoist so i i knew the song right but it really it really did feel like it was out of character for fish at the time to me at least um and that just might be my own personal point of view but um you know when you listen to this version of it towards the end of his solo he's like wrenching emotion mm-hmm. out of this tune in a hard way and it is really it, it's beautiful it really is enough not to say anything of their uh, vocal harmonies, which totally. really make it for me. Uh, but yeah. af- after if I could is split open and melt, which on the fish.net jam charts, which I don't agree with this description. It is described as quote, 
neither chaotic nor dissonant, but odd and improvisational. Like, I thought I heard what they said, like it's six minutes and 45 seconds. It's intense. I could still tell that it's split open and melts, but not yeah. entirely. Like they do get away from the song. A, a word I yeah. wrote in the notes is cuckoo. <laughs> you know? yeah. yeah, totally. It's, um, you know, I was listening to it today, actually. And there's a part midway through, maybe around the six minute mark, where they get into this kind of like staccato kind of start, stop, it's not quite the start stop jamming that they played in 94 sometimes, but it has that kind of, that kind of start stop feel. Like if it were like a car ride, it's not a bump. It's not a smooth ride. It yeah, feels yeah. like a bit of a bumpy ride to listen to. And then Trey starts playing these very like avant-garde type lines that don't really mesh with the song at all. is a bit of an odd version and it doesn't really groove i don't think but it's also pretty amazing yeah. i mean it's really like everything that's that, that goes into that bowie in the set in set two is in is in this first set i mean totally. all the ener- all the energy and all the creativity and all the explosiveness that goes into that bowie was there the entire night and you can hear it in the beginning of the show and especially in this in the split open Agreed. A hundred percent. The yeah. the Bowie is foreshadowed a thousand percent. The yeah. uh, exploration is there in Runaway Jim. The fluidity is there in Foam. The delicacy yep. of certain parts is in If I Could. And the yeah. chaos that envelops that the Lassie and all that stuff is in Split Open and Melt. But, totally. even, but there are also... Like you, the whole reason that you wanted to be here, there are gems in this first set that have nothing to do with David Bowie, like the follow-up horse silent in the morning, which is gorgeous. Another ballad that, you know, it's a little extra long. Even the horse, that guitar riff in the beginning is repeated a few extra times by Trey. Yeah. And the, the vocal harmonies are there again. It's just perfect. Nothing spectacular about it except itself. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, I'm glad that you've mentioned the vocals because everything on that night and everything in the recording sounds perfect for, for lack of a better word. I mean, it Mm -hmm. is, it is, it is just an extraordinary performance of music from start to finish. And it's definitely in the silent, silent in the morning. I mean, it's really, it's very emotional. It's perfectly played. It's peppy. It's got energy. 
you know, nobody was, nobody was going to the bathroom <laughs> during anything that they played in this first set. You know, it was really, it was just perfect. It was amazing. Including the next song, Uncle Penn, which is one of the more rare fish bluegrass tunes. And it was played so fast and so dexterous. You know, this yeah. is a hard song and they just nail yeah. it. I, you know, I've been doing recently a, a re-listen of 1990 in order. And they, they started playing Uncle Penn in early 1990 and during their Colorado run in April. And the first, you'd have to check on the dates because I don't know them offhand. But Oh, the first, I, will. <laughs> I will. Yeah, the first several performances of it, I mean, they can play this song really well, but you can tell that it is difficult to play for them. They don't nail it. And you yeah. can hear the progression of them getting it. But by this night, you've you you've hit the nail on the head i mean it is so fast and literally there is not one single note out of place i remember sitting there watching them do this i had not seen them play uncle pen before that was my first time seeing that seeing that song and i just remember being awestruck at how fast trey was playing and how perfectly he was playing and just how tight and together the band was i mean it was it was extraordinary to watch after Uncle Penn, yeah. the next up is I Didn't Know. And you, you want to talk about, well, I don't know if extraordinary is the best word for it, but my thought at this point, we're toward <laughs> the end of the first set, is they go from psychedelic rock, bluegrass, and now they're at acapella with a vacuum, and they close it with possum, which is, you know, rockabilly, I think is fair, country rock at least. Yeah. And yet it all sounds like it belongs. That's magic. Yeah. That's fish in 1994. Yeah. I mean, it was, like I said, it was like, it was something that I had never heard before. I never knew a band could be so dexterous and so have be so good at so many different kinds of music, or even that they would want to play so many different kinds of music, you know, but even this, I didn't know, you got to give it a, a listen because I mean, people will think I'm crazy. Like it's a tenants bias, but listen to it. Fishman's vacuum solo has got a little bit of extra juice in it. I'm telling you, everything <laughs> on this night, everything they played on this night had just a little something extra. Fishman really, I, I never thought this before, I, well, except today. I was listening to it today. And during that vacuum solo, I had the thoughts in these exact words where I, I thought to myself, Fishman is playing the vacuum like an instrument. And that's a very yes. simple, it's a very <laughs> simple thought. And any other fish fan, including myself, would probably say, Duh, obviously yeah. he is, but it, it just felt that way when I was listening to it. It's he took the silliest thing in the world very seriously. Yeah. Yeah, no, he's really playing the vacuum. And you can hear <laughs> that he's he's really he's honest to goodness soloing. Yeah. And it sounds pretty good. It sounds pretty good to me. So yeah. And to close the whole set, they play poss they play possum, which yeah. has more dueling banjos teases, which are much more distinct in this than they were earlier, which makes sense because Possum is much closer to doing banjos in terms of genre yeah. and, and theme. And then they have a short, very short LA woman tease that fits right in. I mean, Possum for someone like you just said is listening to 1990 from front to back and all the way through 94 and then through 98 when they would play Wipeout in Possum it just seems yeah. like Possum is a musical playground for them. It's a blank slate. I mean, I think from, you know, to my ear, going back to 1990, I really think it's in early 1990 when Possum starts getting weird. 
there are certain versions of it which are definitely a departure from what they were doing before that. And I don't think that really changed much through the early 90s and through the mid 90s. I think that song was always the place where they could push each other and push the song. And even in this version, I don't know exactly what Trey is doing, but in the beginning of the jam, Trey goes into this sound on his guitar and it almost sounds like he's pulling the rest of the, the band down almost. I mean, they keep playing, huh. obviously, but it's this sound where, I mean, if you listen to it, you'll, you'll hear it, but he's playing this, this, something on the guitar that, and it sounds like he's, I don't know, it sounds like a drag on the band almost, but it's not. And, and it goes on for a couple minutes and then just explodes into like this, this amazing possum jam. Again, like there's some dark moments in this possum foreshadowing the Bowie. There's like, there's a little bit of evil territory in this version. And again, like everything in the show, it's, it's perfectly played. It's a great version. And it, it was an amazing way to, to end a set, to end that set in particular. Set two. I did not move from my spot during that set break. I did not use the bathroom. I just... I sat on the floor with my friends and took the whole scene in, you know, and it was, it was really exciting and super fun. And we didn't know what was coming and this David Bowie was coming. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But not just Bowie. It was also it, the, the set opened. I think a lot of people would forget with Gaiute, which is yeah. at the time quite new. It debuted on October 7th, 94. And this is only late December of that yeah. same year. So it didn't, you know, it wasn't like sunk in yet, you know, and it wasn't over, you know, they still had right. a lot of tinkering to do yet right. in that short two month span approximate, you know, maybe closer to three months. This was the 19th time that it had been played. So that's a mm. lot in two and a half months to play a song 19 times. And then after this show, it took a break and all the way, almost a full year until Halloween yeah. 95. And it isn't organized the way that we know it, how they're tinkering with certain right. parts, you know, it's, it's recognizable. It is Gaiuti for sure, but it's not yeah, polished and it doesn't flow as we know it today. Right. You know, the funny thing for me about that, about this version of Gaiuti is 
as I said before, at the time, it was not nearly as easy then to hear a lot of fish music. You know, you had a handful of tapes and that's what you heard. And I remember at that night that I didn't have any tapes from fall 94. So except for the Halloween show, I hadn't heard any of that tour at all because tapes were hard to come by. You know, the tapes I had were before that fall. (laughs) And so I did not know there was a song called Gayuti at all. It was completely new to me. And I really wanted to hear new songs. And I was so thrilled that I was (laughs) hearing this new tune that I didn't know. And also that it was this song. And I remember watching them play it. I mean, I was close enough that I could see what they were doing clearly. And it looked so intricate and it's, it feels so celebratory when you listen to it now, even though it's not exactly what we know it to be later down, down the line, it is a really, really solidly played version. Sure. And next up is of course, David Bowie and anyone listening to this episode, I've said my piece about this performance I was very lucky to have fish lyricist Tom Marshall appear on this show. And this, that was Mm -hmm. the jam that he chose that David Bowie from Providence. So, and we spent probably close to 50 minutes talking about this David Bowie. So I've said my piece, anyone listening to this episode, if you want to hear my thoughts on it, go back and listen to the Tom Marshall episode after you finish Rob and my conversation. So Rob, you have the floor. What are your thoughts on this highly remembered David Bowie. Well, that first thing is that that episode, if anyone hasn't heard it, is a great episode. Um, it's really fun to hear Tom Marshall talk about this in particular and, and you, of course, um, <laughs> thank you. And me, <laughs> you know, um, and everything that you said and that Tom said about it is absolutely correct. I mean, it is in a way it really does kind of transcend everything else about them. It's really spectacular. The fact that it was performed, that it was improvised is mind blowing. It's, it's hard to get your head around how it could possibly be real when you go back (laughs) and listen to it. But like I said, everything that made that Bowie, I think existed in everything else on this night. The one thing that I will say about it, because you and Tom covered it all basically is that you guys, you, you got to go and listen to the digital delay loop jam opening because, you know, when you hear that, you can hear in the recording that there is not a sound happening in the entire place. The entire audience was so focused on what they were doing. And that was such a weird way to open a song. Nobody knew what it was. Nobody knew what they were doing what song they were playing. And I remember the stage was bathed in this like dark blue light during that digital delay jam. And it is extraordinary to hear. And it goes on for, I think three and a half or four minutes even. The band plays behind it. Thank you. 
they jammed this digital delay loop and it was so there's that you need to hear that and then also too aside from this incredible jam in the david bowie which is the reason it's so historic i don't think i've ever heard another version of david bowie where the beginning composed section and the end composed section is played so perfectly i mean talk about x factor by the time they rip into the end i mean they're to use all the like you know, rock and roll cliches, like they are ripping the place down. Yeah. At the end of this David Bowie, it is phenomenal. And so listen to the other episode. And if you've heard it, if you've never heard it, definitely listen to it. Um, if you've heard it once, listen to it again. I mean, it's really, yeah. it's, it's, it's a superlative performance in every way. And that's one of the things about Fish in 94 and 95. I would suggest that it, there's, it's so dense. There's so much that you could listen to either a single performance or a show for mm-hmm. 25, 26, or in this case, nearly 30 years that you're still hearing things that you hadn't heard the previous right. dozen times that you've listened to it. But after that Bowie is over, the next song up is Haley's Comet. After, you know, we thought that there was a giant applause before, if I could, there's a giant applause after that Bowie. You know, it's a real... Yeah. It's a real ovation. And yeah. at the beginning of Haley's, I first started seeing them in 97. And by then, Haley's Comet was slow and funky. Now, most people yeah. know that I think it's the Winston-Salem version, or maybe it's Hampton Coliseum. I'll have to double check that on the fall 97 tour. This yeah. And I like it better here, I think. I love the funk. I love Cal Funk. But I think I like this pep and power rock Haley's Comet. Yeah, I, I, I mean, back in those days, it was. I always thought of it as a rock tune. On on this night, this version is it's about as rock and roll as you can get. It really kicks pretty hard, and you can hear that the band again, like talking about how the phone carried all that momentum from Jim into it. Everything that came after the Bowie carried all that momentum from the Bowie and the energy from the crowd into it. And this Haley's has it for sure. 
Agreed. And I had that thought. I'm so glad you phrased it that way because I had that thought about almost the entire rest of the set. Because after Haley's Comet, that great succinct rock version is The Lizards, which is also about 10 minutes long. The first thought I had was after they started playing The Lizards, one of the most sought after Gamehenge songs that when you look around now and you're, if you're lucky enough to be at a fish show and they play it in 2021, 22, the whole place always goes bonkers. It's you right. almost always hear a fan say, oh, my God, I, I was hoping they would play Lizards or yeah. so, oh, something along those lines. Oh, my God, yeah. I love Lizards. You know, of, of all the Gamehenge songs that they could play, this seems to right. be the, the, the bullseye. For most yep. people, Iculus totally. aside, I would suggest. Right, right. Uh, but I imagine that the vibe in this room must have been off the charts positive. This is the most feel-good song that they have, arguably. Yeah. I mean, you can. I think that you can hear, if you listen, you can hear in this recording, on the Live Fish recording at least, that throughout the whole show, the crowd is definitely a factor in what was happening that night. I mean, there was something in the air that we felt, that the band felt, but I don't know. I, I don't know like where where it started. But it's it's there all night and through a, behind a lot of these songs, you can hear the crowd, which I know sounds like a silly th- thing to say to like tell people to listen to the crowd in a in a fish tape or you know a fish show. But you can hear it in the audience reaction to what they're doing, which is why I think the silence during the digital delay loop jam of David Bowie is significant. Is because you know they were not quiet because they were not interested. Like the crowd was quiet during that moment because they were like hooked on every moment of what was happening. But like behind this David Bowie, or behind the lizards rather, I mean, you can hear the crowd is like, I mean, we all knew that it was a special night. Everyone, everyone knew that it was a special, especially after that Bowie. And after the lizards talk about crushing a set, we go back to Fishman for hold your head up into Cracklin' Rosie. And <laughs> I, my thought was, Oh my God, thank you for some comic relief because I don't know if I could take any more drama. And this yeah. is 30, almost 30 years after the show happened. Yeah, no, it was a heavy night. And um, he came out and cracked and Rosie. I mean, also, again, I, I don't always put a lot of thought into the Fishman tunes in terms yeah, of same. appreciating them musically the same way that I appreciate other things that you hear. You know, because I think the point of it really is comic relief on one level, but it's a good version of the song. I mean, the band sounds good. Trey can really play the drums and it's fun to watch him play the drums, you know? He smiles the most when he's on the drum set. Yeah, he totally, he really, I mean, on this night in particular, he was really, really into it, you know? You know, everyone forgets, or I do it when I say everyone, I'm really speaking in the first person, uh, that... The phrase comic relief is intended as relief. You know, you need to take a breath. You need to go to the bathroom. You need to get a beer or whatever, you know, what have you. Your show errands. Someone, a recent guest called it. You need to take care of yourself at a show when your mind is probably sloshed. And if that David Bowie didn't do it, your, your emotions went into overdrive during Lizards. Yeah, that sort of thing. And just like before, when I said during... Uh, I didn't know that Fishman is playing the vacuum like an instrument. It's really yeah. funny. I wrote for the for this show, for Crackling Rosie, for this song. 
the chorus actually sounds like a real band. You know, these very basic statements that sound yeah. so silly out of context. But like you said, for Fishman, you don't take it seriously. Cracklin' Rosie, it's a Neil Diamond song, but it sounds like a real band playing it, not just some jokey band. But you make me sing like a guitar humming. So hang out with me, your song keeps running. Yeah, totally. I mean, one of my notes, Brian, was aside from watching Trey play the drums, which I love. So I don't, I couldn't identify who it is, but someone is singing a high harmony behind Fishman during the "Oh, I Love My Rosie Child" section. And like you said before, the vocals on this night are just so on point that. I mean, it sounds like you said, it sounds like this band is having this comic moment, but they are taking the music very seriously. And to follow up a Neil Diamond cover with a Led Zeppelin cover with good times, yeah. bad times. How often in the world of music does that happen? You know, however many bands try to insert humor, it doesn't work because it seems right. like they're trying to be funny. Fish yeah. is funny because they... Like you just said, they take the joke, but take the joke seriously. And holy shit, this good times, bad times. They're an arena rock band at this point, right? This this yeah. Northeast Corridor New Year's Eve run is played in legitimate rock venues, arena rock. Yeah. And so why not play Led Zeppelin, this song that they've been playing pretty much since their inception? And my thought yeah. was sitting back to it in context of this entire show and this set is maybe that David Bowie zapped whatever psychedelic creativity they had left, which is yeah. earned. So they're leaning yeah. on their, their tricks, you know, whether it's yeah. funny Fishman songs or short energetic rock and Haley's comet or Zeppelin covers, no complaints. Yeah. I just think yeah. that they're kind of, you know, they're showing their bag of tricks and maybe showing their hand a little bit. Yeah, a little bit. I think, you know, it's interesting because I think when you go back to hear stuff from 89 and 90 and you listen to a lot of it, you hear like Good Times, Bad Times is a good, is a good example. They played this song probably hundreds of times by the time they play it on this night, maybe more than that. You know, I mean, it's um, and they go back to their bag of tricks, but these are tricks that they've been working on since 1983 together. Right. Tricks might not, might not even be the right know, word. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's, they're going back to what they really do well and which you can hear, I think, in the earlier tapes, which is like they are just a sick rock band. Yeah. They are the tightest band around. I mean, they were then. I mean, it wasn't even close in my mind. But this Good Times, Bad Times, like everything else played on this night is just stellar. There is an incredible heartbreaker tease 
which yes. I feel like I feel like it's more than just a tease. They don't quite go into it, but it almost kind of sounds like they could tip into it at a moment, you know? Yeah, no, it's a full-on heartbreaker, you know? And yeah. someone who yeah. you mentioned earlier that you would play early fish to get someone into fish or to, to get their interest, at least in response to that question, some, you know, fish has a lot of connective tissue with classic rock. It's no yeah. surprise that a lot of us, you mentioned your dad at WBCN being a DJ, which correct me if I'm wrong, that that was kind of Boston's classic rock station. Yes. I mean, I think at the time he was there, it wasn't classic rock yet, but. Well, yeah, it wasn't yeah. classic. It was just yeah, yeah. rock. It was, uh, by it the was time just music. I yeah. To it. yeah. 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 You know, when totally. Fish plays Led Zeppelin and then in 2010, they had the tweezer Zeppelin night at uh, in Atlantic City. It's no surprise that people who earn, you know, not earn, but who get into music through the who and the Beatles and Led Zeppelin, Jimi Hendrix, you know, everyone, anyone who's gone to a head shop when they're 13 or 15, you know, yeah. eventually fish can even if they don't definitely, but they can appeal to you because they're the type of band that might tease heartbreaker by Led Zeppelin in the middle of good times, bad times by right. Led Zeppelin. Absolutely. It's just yeah. fun stuff. It's, it's, it's amazing. And like, you know, I didn't think about this at the time I was watching them play this, but sure. in years since knowing the history of the band better now than I did then, I think it's really cool that like in 94, you could go see them and they would play tunes like good times, bad times that they were playing at Nectar's. Yeah. They were playing at the front when they were a college band in bars, you know, like there is some, like you said, connective tissue. Like there's, there's something to that, that like, they're still playing the same music in 94. And it's fun to think that like, Oh, these guys were like in a bar eight years ago. You know, and probably in a dorm before that. You know, you can trace it back to playing good times, bad times, like, you know, on the UVM campus somewhere with like 20 people watching or whatever, you know. But on this night, it was different than that. And it was, I mean, the whole the whole show is just, I mean, even if you cut the bully out, which you should definitely not do, it is a, <laughs> it is a stellar performance from yeah. start to finish. Better than any really, band you've seen probably. At that point, you know, at 17 years old, even without the Bowie. Definitely. And we, and you know something, I, I knew it because as soon as that show was finished, and this is something that I had never done at a show before. So as I said, this was my fifth show, but in order to leave, we had to walk by the soundboard, right? Cause we were on the floor. Mm -hmm. And I said to my friend, I was like, I have to get a tape of the show. I have to. And we went to the taping section and we flagged someone down and he sent me tapes of this show. I probably got them in the mail, like in March. So this was like the end of December, like a few months later, I got this package with Which this is tape. quick for the time. Yeah. 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 I mean, and I, and I, and I did not, you know, I was not like big into rec music fish. It seemed there were a lot of rules about tape trading at that time. And it seemed complicated to me and I didn't get a lot of tapes that way. And I, like I said, I had never approached a taper before, but I don't know who this guy was, but he was super nice. I don't even think I sent him postage and blanks. He just sent me the show because I was so like, you know, dude, you have to send this to me. Like, I don't know what to do, <laughs> but I got to have it. And I remember the first time I heard it on tape, I was like instantly transported back to this amazing night. And every note sounded exactly the way it did. And 
I knew it was a special night. And, you know, like I said before, later I was, I was vindicated. It really, it really is an amazing show. Well, don't leave yet. Don't walk out through the soundboard just yet because good times, bad times closed right. set yeah. two, but we got the encore and the encore consisted of my long journey home bluegrass classic, which for years yeah. was mislabeled on at least my tapes as $2 bill. And then yep. to close the whole show was sleeping monkey, which is the encore and couldn't be happy unless you got more fishman vocals. Cause he had to yeah. sing, you know, he, totally. he, got, <laughs> he got, you know, amazing drumming. He got his vacuum. He got his cymbals during yep. a, a crackling Rosie. And now yep. he gets to sing. So, wow. What a, you know, what a goofy end to a perfect night. Yeah. So when they came out for the encore, I was surprised because they all had acoustic instruments and I remembered what they were all playing. I actually, in the notes, I put a picture. I don't know if you saw it of them playing at a, a different night. I did see that. Yeah. It was in the, it was on 11, 1994. This photo was taken. It was the parking lot of the Indiana university auditorium in Bloomington. And I think they were playing $2 bill when this picture or my long journey home, this picture was taken. But in any case, I couldn't remember what Fishman was playing. And in this picture, it's clear that he's playing the mandolin. So it was Fishman playing the mandolin. It was Paige, Paige playing the stand-up bass, Trey on the acoustic guitar, and Mike playing the banjo. And they stood around a microphone and they ripped into this bluegrass tune that I also had never heard before. And again, you got to listen to it. It is a superb recording of this song. It has energy. Vocals are on point. It just sounds perfect. I mean, it was the perfect way to end that show, which, I mean, everything they did on that night was like the perfect way to follow what had just come <laughs> before. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, it was really crazy. And then The Sleeping Monkey, I mean, who doesn't love that song? It's an amazing version of it. It's got that kind of slow, nostalgic tempo and that feel to it where you're just like, I mean, it really was kind of like an outpouring of like, wow, did we just see this show? And um, yeah, everybody walked out of that show being like, you know, just, wow, what happened? What just happened? So definitely come for the Bowie, stay for all of it because <laughs> you, will, you will not be disappointed at all, at all. Rob Murray, thank you a trillion times over for being on this show with the intent to draw attention to this legendary show, aside from the well-worn, but deservedly well-worn, 
recording of David Bowie on December 29th, 94 at the Providence Civic Center, because anyone who just uses that as an excuse to listen to the show is missing out on a whole lot. So thank you for number one, being as big a fish nerd as I am and anyone else listening, because we, <laughs> you know, there's solace in numbers. Right. And so, you know, it, it was great to just geek out for an hour. That's my favorite thing to do on this show and to call attention to parts of this show that deserve to be recognized. I appreciate you taking the time. Hey, Brian, thank you so much. This was so much fun. Anytime, anytime. <laughs> And that's it for today's episode with Rob Murray about 1229-94 at the Providence Civic Center. And that was an extensive in-depth conversation, but there were some facts and logic put in there. So now let's make sure we were all correct with the attendance bias fact check. Attendance bias fact check. When answering the lightning round question about which point in fish history Rob would travel back to, he names the show at Nectar's on March 12, 1988, citing it as the first live performance of the Gamehenge saga. According to Fish.net, it was also manager John Paluska's first show. The Gamehenge saga contained narration, a cover of Charles Mingus's Jump Monk, and the first live versions of Tila and Colonel Forbin's Ascent. When talking about the weirdest things he's ever seen at a fish show, Rob tells about the 1994 New Year's gag when the band came flying in on their famous hot dog from the top of the arena. To hear more about this gag and a different fan's experience, check out the Attendance Bias episode about Prime Cuts featuring Cara Polisi, who chose that show to tell her experience. Rob says that the first time he ever saw someone wearing a fish shirt, or at least having some visual representation of the band that he heard about, was at a Grateful Dead show in Boston during the fall of 1993. While Rob doesn't remember the exact date of that Dead show, the Grateful Dead played the Boston Garden for six nights that September. September 24th, 25th, 26th, 28th, 29th, and 30th. Rob said he is in the middle of a front-to-back listen of 1990, and he mentions that Uncle Penn first debuted that year. He is 100% correct about that. The Bill Monroe tune was first played by Fish on March 28, 1990, at the Beta Theta Pi Fraternity House in Denison University in Granville, Ohio. That show also featured the debuts of Tweezer, Runaway Jim, and Cavern. Toward the end of today's show, I said that Good Times, Bad Times was a cover that Fish has been playing, quote, pretty much since their inception. I am almost right. Although the band first technically got together in 1984, the debut of Good Times, Bad Times was December 6th, 1986 at the ranch in Shelburne, Vermont. That show also featured the debuts of Funky Bitch, Light Up or Leave Me Alone, Little Drummer Boy, Tush, and She Caught the Katie. And that's it for the fact check and today's episode. Thank you to Rob Murray for joining me today. Thank you to fish.net for their help with the fact check. And thank you to fish.in for the outstanding recording used in today's episode. Thank you for listening. And if you enjoy attendance bias, please support the show by leaving a rating and a review of it on your favorite podcast app. And follow Attendance Bias on social media. I am mostly active on Instagram and Twitter. Reach out, say hi, and I'll send you a free sticker. Thank you again for listening, and I'll see you next week on Attendance Bias. Attendance Bias.